news. And we have more good news to consider. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We've been in this letter for about a month now. This is, I think, the fifth Sunday in Colossians. And we are actually going to go backwards a little bit. We've considered the first 14 verses of this opening letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Much of the opening of this letter was a a thankful, prayerful portion in which Paul was was rejoicing over the, the fruit of the gospel in the hearts of the people that he was writing to and praying for more, praying that there would be more evidence of what God has done for them in Christ, evident in their lives. And then we've tried to carefully consider these things. In the process of considering them, Paul said something that I want to circle back to. It's almost like a parenthetical statement, like in parentheses. But it's so profound and so significant, we, it'd be wise for us to kind of go back and just hit it before we continue on with Paul's letter. And that's found in the last part of verse 5, in the beginning of verse 6. I believe the uh, verses will be on the screen, or the portion of it that I'll be drawing our attention to. But it's about the gospel. The gospel. Something quite significant is being said here about the gospel. And I want to draw our attention to it this morning. So let's read these words. Verse 5 and 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. Let's pray. God, as we come to this, your word, as we reconsider this word gospel, as we wrestle with that this morning, we pray that you would just be with us and help us to see how profound and amazing and, and awe-inspiring it is that all that you have done for us in Christ. And may it shape the way that we live for you and your glory. And so would you be with us as we come to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We can never overstate the significance of the gospel. You can try, but you won't ever be able to overstate it. And we can never overemphasize the primacy or the the most important status of the gospel. You can try, but you'll never make it uh, more prime to our faith. And we can never oversell the wonder of the gospel. Again, you can put all your effort into trying to oversell it. But you will never be able to do it. Never. That's how profound it is. It's radically amazing. Now, however, we can assume that everyone understands the gospel. Or believe vague notions of God's character are the same as the gospel. Or soften the gospel so that maybe more people would find it easier to take. Like as if Mary Poppins got up here and preached a two two spoonfuls of sugar gospel message to help it go down. Now we can never overstate, overemphasize, oversell. We can assume, we can get vague, and we can certainly try to soften it. It is crucial that we understand 
the explicitness of the gospel. How very specific and very explicit it is. And if we really want to understand what the gospel is doing in the world, we need to understand the gospel itself. And if we really want to join God in what he is doing through the gospel in the world, then again, it comes back to we need to know this gospel. My hope this morning is that we'll have hearts that are moved, lives that are transformed, to join what God is doing through the gospel. That we would want to join God in what he is doing through the gospel. My hope. And what we find is as we go about treasuring Christ, our lives are incrementally, slowly, sometimes suddenly changed and transformed to join God's mission. And his mission is a gospel work. And our joining that mission is making much of the gospel in and through our lives. So how do we do that? To make much of the gospel, we need to know the following. What is the gospel? What the gospel is doing? And how we join God in what the gospel is doing. And that's where we're going this morning. What is the gospel? So here we see Paul say to the Colossian church, Hey, you've heard the word of truth, the gospel. What is the gospel? Two things that I want to say about this. Well, a lot of things. Two things that sort of over, sort of sit as umbrellas about this. One It is a very specific announcement. The gospel is a very specific announcement. And then two, the second thing we'll consider about what is the gospel is it is in the context of two stories. I'll get to that in a moment. First, it is the gospel is a very specific announcement. We started our morning worship service off this morning Considering an Old Testament passage from Isaiah 52, verse 7. We find that passage sort of repeated again in Romans chapter 10. But at the heart of what we see in this passage gives us an idea that God is in the business about making a very specific announcement about salvation. I want to read to you again Psalm 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It is a specific announcement. The same words that we get for gospel, our gospel preaching, we find there in the Old Testament in Isaiah 52. God's in the business of announcing something. He's announcing that he has secured salvation. So the gospel, what is it? is a very specific announcement. Now, if I were to ask everybody in here to write on a piece of paper your definition of the gospel, however many people are in here, we would probably have that many variants, that many different nuances and and descriptions. And, And many of them we could catalog and together and put into similar categories. But overall, it would be very spread out. So what I want to do right now is to give a definition a very important one, about what is the gospel. If it's a very specific announcement, then we need to make sure we get the specifics right according to the Bible. So it's going to be on the screen. Go ahead and throw it up there. Here is a working definition of the gospel. 
Now, give me a second to explain it. It looks like a lot of words. That's not it. Go back. I mean, it is it. That's my shorthand one. No, the other way. There it is. God sovereignly and graciously saves sinners through the substitutionary life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all who put their faith in Christ will be saved. I know that's a lot. And I know we like to have things simple, clean, easy to remember. We, we like that. I, I, I know I do. I'm a minimalist when it comes to just about anything. But we have to be specific when it comes to what God has done. So we're going to leave that screen up there for a second. It is God sovereignly and graciously saving sinners through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all who put their faith in Christ will be saved. Now there's a shorthand version of that. You use four words. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. I know our next screen has that. And maybe um, those four words will be easier to remember. If you want to go back to the longer definition, keeping in mind those four words, God, man, Christ, response. So look at the beginning of our definition. God sovereignly and graciously saves. We start with God. The good news of what God has done starts first with God. It starts with God. He is sovereign. That means He's over everything. All of everything is His. He's in charge. He is the ruler. He is perfect in all of His ways. He's eternal. He's God. There's no other. And so all of his character, all of his attributes, everything about God, he is perfectly and forever that. So when we say that God is just, he is perfectly just. When God is holy, he is perfectly holy. We start with God and we see that God is sovereign over all things. So he's in charge. It's his playground and and he is the king. But it also says he is gracious. While God is definitely over everything and overwhelmingly holy, not an ounce of weakness or sin in him, perfect holiness, he is also gracious. That means God gives what we don't deserve. That's grace. Giving what you don't earn. He is gracious. To do what? To save. To save. So we start with this big picture of God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is true. And he is gracious. To save. Now the next word that we have is man. And man's word up there is just one word. But it says all that we need it to say. And that is sinners. God sovereignly and graciously saves sinners. We have a massive problem. We have the cancer of the soul. We have sin. Sin separates us from this sovereign, gracious God. It actually doesn't just separate us, but it puts us in opposition to Him. That we live in defiance to God because we have a sinful heart. We sin 
thoroughly. We're not basically good people who have smudges. We are thoroughly broken, sinful people who can do no good to earn what God would graciously give. We are the problem. Not our circumstances, though they can be awful and harsh and overwhelming. Our problem still is the thing that beats inside of us. It's our heart. And our heart is wayward, perpetually, always, unless God graciously intervenes. That's who we are. If we don't understand who we are correctly, why would we ever cry out to a God for salvation that we don't really think we need? We need to know ourselves truly. And then we get to see in greater clarity God's grace. That's the second word. That's the problem word. It's us. We're the problem. Sean Carpenter's biggest problem is Sean Carpenter. That's us. Now, this leads to then the third word. God, man, Christ. So how does God sovereignly and graciously overcome the problem, our sin? He does it through Jesus Christ. The substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, we need the word substitutionary. Yes, it's a mouthful. Yes, we don't really use that word. But I don't want to throw it away because we need it. We need that word. Because it's Jesus substituting him in the place of me, of you. It's Jesus living a life that I could never live on my own. I could never do all that God required. I can't. I'll fail before I even try. The same is true for you. You can never do what God requires of you. You will fail. And even when you think you're doing it, spoiler alert, you're getting an F. We need someone outside of us to become one of us, to rescue us. And in Jesus, God the Son incarnate, taking on flesh to live the life that we could not live, and then to take that life and to do with it what we could never do on our own. We did not have the resources to pay for the penalty of our sin. We're broke, spiritually broke. We're bankrupt. We don't have a a dime in our name, spiritually speaking. And Jesus is is a reservoir, unending. He is perfect, righteousness that means he's got all of the treasure of the heaven backing him and he takes that perfect life and he lays it down as a payment and it's in his death in our place that our sin payment is paid in full how then do we know that it's paid in full the resurrection says payment received sin paid for death defeated satan loses so in his life in his death in his resurrection all in our place we have salvation secured amazing profound worth all the songs worth all the passion worth all the energy worth all our lives worth it profound it's incredible what god has done in the gospel for us now there's one last thing though is this for anybody and everybody in a sense yes but All who put their faith in Christ will be saved. There's a response. 
There's a response to the overwhelming goodness and grace of the gospel, and that is to put your faith, your hope in Christ. Faith and repentance, the Bible lays out for us, is the response, the appropriate response to the gospel. Repentance means to turn away, turning away from your sin, turning away from the way that you lived in total rejection and rebellion against God, and, and to turn away from that by turning to Christ through faith, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection to be enough for your salvation. That you don't actually need to add anything to it. You see Jesus fully sufficient to save you from your sin. Now that explanation, I still feel like I've rushed. It's overwhelming how deep and incredible the gospel is. And that's why that definition is so important. That we hold tight to it. It's a very specific announcement of how God saves Now, there are some nevers. That is to never be assumed. I heard it said this way once. When a generation assumes the gospel, the next one forgets it. The third one rejects it. For some of us, some of us in here, we're we're old saints. We've lived a long life and we've been following the Lord maybe longer than many of us have been alive. And I think that you would if honest, would say, yeah, I, I have seen that play out. If my generation assumes it, the next one forgets it, and the third one just rejects it altogether. We can never assume the gospel. We can never assume it in how we go about being the church. We can't assume it in our own lives. It is explicit in our praise. It's explicit in our prayer. It's explicit in our preaching. Never assume it. I don't want to stand up here on any given Sunday and assume everybody in here knows it. We also, some of you grammarians need to forgive me. I'm going to bring a little double negative here. It's for the art, not for the grammar. It is to never not be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is to never not be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Most specifically, the cross where that payment is in full. Any vague notion of the gospel leaves people and churches susceptible to error, confusion, or false gospel. If we go around saying the gospel is God wins, or the gospel is love, the gospel is God is love, or the gospel is radical, or the gospel is revolutionary, we're not really ever saying anything. No one can actually be saved if that is our gospel presentation. If I were to just stand up here and say, the gospel is God is love, all of us would be damned to hell if we didn't get an explicit description of how that love has been demonstrated. We cannot be vague. It must always be centered on the person and work of Christ. Thirdly, it's never to be softened. Mary Poppins needs to repent of her two spoonfuls of sugar. It is medicine that we desperately sin-soaked, soul-broken need. And we need to be not ashamed of it. 
Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're not to be ashamed of this. We're not to go out of our way to soften it because it is embarrassing to us. Or soften it because we don't think anyone will get it. We'll get around to that in a moment. We know that the gospel will be a stumbling block for some. 1 Corinthians 1.18, and that whole paragraph, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The gospel is to be explicit. You can move on to the next slide. It is to be explicit and for help, for our sake, we can remember it in those words. God, man, Christ responds. We can remember the explicitness of what it is that God has actually done for us and not lose sight of how profound it is. Now, we understand this very specific announcement in the context of two stories. Two stories. The first story is a grand story. It is the story of God's word. It is the story of the Bible that you have. The Bible that you have may seem overwhelming to you. And it is most likely confusing to you in much of it. It is for me too. I have to study. I have to think. I have to pray. I have to really research and understand this. But that being said, this is an incredibly unified whole big picture story that you have in your lap. It is a grand story. And the gospel that's explicit is, is couched within this grand story of what God is doing in human history, in all of history. And what God is doing is he's overcoming something that has fallen apart. There are four major markers of this story. Creation, when God made all things. He created the context for grace to be experienced. He created the context for the gospel to come forth. He created all things. Out of nothing, he spoke and everything was. And it was good. And at the center of creation was mankind created to know him and to love him and to enjoy him and to glorify him. They were created to be in relationship with him. But then something tragic happened in Genesis chapter 3. Sin came bursting into this creation. And mankind fell. In the fall, mankind fell. Fell from that relationship. Fell from that privileged position. Sin brought separation. And separation brought death. Death came. And this grand story unfolding in the pages of Scripture, unfolding in the pages of history, didn't end at the fall. That dark day, the darkest day, that dark day in Genesis 3 was given a little kernel of hope. A little kernel of hope in Genesis 3.15. That one day one would come from Eve who would crush the serpent. It's just this little kernel that that would grow and flourish over the pages of Scripture and history. Leading up to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Leading us to the third chapter of this human history that we have. Redemption. There we get to champion the explicit gospel. There we champion Christ, our, the king who came to rescue his wayward people, to restore what is broken, to redeem us from the curse of the law and the curse of sin. And then ultimately, 
the finality of what Jesus does in redemption will lead to one great and glorious day in which all of it will be restored. All of it. What was lost in creation will be restored, but even better because it will be bought back and totally restored by the reigning, ruling, and one day returning King Jesus. And all of his people will enter into that restored forever place where God and man will dwell and there will be no more curse. Revelation 22, there will be no more curse. Not a hint, not a shadow, no more. The ailments we feel in this life will be no more. Whether they're physical or spiritual or emotional, they will be no more. There will be no more death. There will be no more ache. There will be no more hurt. There will be no more brokenness. There will be no more sin. There will be no more evil. There will be no more injustice. Why? Because King Jesus restored it all. This grand story is the context for our gospel. The specific announcement of how God brings it about. That's one of the stories. The other story, I said it's in the context of two stories. The other story is a personal story. A personal story. Our stories are street-level vignettes for the grand story being accomplished through the explicit gospel in actual human lives. Our stories bring a little bit of skin and bone into reality for others to see that God really does save sinners. That He really does burst into our dead hearts and bring life. Our stories of redemption to have us restored to God are sort of micro stories of the grand narrative of what God is doing. But everything, whether it's in the grand narrative or our personal story, hinges entirely on the specific gospel, God-man Christ response. Now, a couple of warnings. The grand story is not the gospel. It just gives the gospel the biblical historical context of why it's so breathtakingly amazing. And our stories are not the gospel. Our stories are to be beacons onto the gospel. Sometimes, and I've noticed this, our stories seem to either emphasize the fallenness of our sin, our brokenness of our background, Or they emphasize the radical change in our lives. And they do so without really emphasizing what God has done through Jesus on our behalf. Therefore, we go about neutering the gospel rather than making it explicit. Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter, his story was explicitly Christ and him crucified. Not look how bad I was, now look how awesome my life is. His story was, I consider everything that I had in my life rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And he didn't make much of all of the costly living of his life that he gave in making much of Christ. He just made much of Christ. Similarly, our stories can be wonderful beacons that, that illuminate out 
a grand story with an explicit gospel. But the brightness of our illumines, and I've been looking at light bulbs recently, somewhere along the way, capitalism created 37 different kinds of light bulbs, which is good. I guess I would rather have 37 different kinds of light bulbs than the government telling me I can only have one. So I'll take the 37. But I've been reading boxes and lumens and brightness and thinking, okay, where's the value? I'm trying to find it. I don't know why. The brightness of our lumens will be connected to the explicitness of the gospel in our lives. The brightness of our lumens, how the light of Christ shines forth out of our lives will be directly linked to the explicitness of the gospel in our lives. May we have 1,500 illumines of gospel truth pouring out of our lives. May our stories be bright for Christ, not just our stories. He's the hero. Live like he's the hero. Now that's the gospel. I spent a lot of time on that. What is the gospel doing? Well, our passage tells us, let's get our minds geared back to that. Our passage tells us that the gospel is going out into the whole world and it's bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is bearing and increasing. You can go to the next one. Bearing and increasing and it's doing that throughout the world. What that means is the gospel is effective. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Meaning, as the gospel is proclaimed and announced, sinners, get this, are getting saved. God's intended ends of the gospel are not thwarted. They're not stunted. They're not deterred. He accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish. And the imagery of bearing and increasing give us the images of, of these things. One, it's, it's vitality, that there is a power at work here greater than the obstacles of the hard human heart or the pagan idolatrous culture. That the Colossian believers themselves are, are evidence that the gospel is effective. That it can burst into hard human hearts and per, burst through pagan idolatrous cultures. That no heart or culture is stronger than what the gospel is doing. The gospel will bear fruit. It will grow through all of the cracks and hardness of ground, and it will bear fruit. It is vital. Secondly, we think of life. When I think of the imagery of bearing fruit and increasing, I think of life. It is, as I said last week, drawing on the imagery from Genesis 1, where Adam and Eve were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply. And so the gospel goes out, and it powerfully works, bringing life. So where there was death, where there was dead human hearts, now there is life. So the gospel is vitally powerful, and it is bringing life. And then the third image that comes to mind with bearing fruit and increasing is goodness. Fresh fruit is sweet and good. And redeemed people making much of Jesus is sweet and good. 
So in a harsh, cynical, hyperactive, easily distracted, always bored world, the gospel is truly good news. And what we find is that this bearing and increasing is going throughout the world. It is an inclusive announcement about an exclusive Savior. Paul says it's going throughout the world. The whole world. He's writing to people who did not grow up in the Jewish faith. He's writing to people who grew up in sort of a pagan, pluralistic society that had many, many different kinds of gods, and you just picked one, and whatever was good for you is good for you, as long as it didn't invade my life. But this gospel is to go out to the whole world. It is an inclusive announcement about an exclusive Savior. Inclusive, meaning all peoples everywhere can receive the gospel. The Colossians are evidenced of that themselves. One, uh, if you were to just look your eye down um, in chapter 1 to verse 21, they were described as alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The gospel went out to them and brought life. So if the Colossians, who were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, can be saved, then so can you and me. The gospel goes out to all the ends of the earth. The gospel is not for the altogethers or the basically good or the clean myself ups or the bootstrappers. It is for the dead. It is for the alienated. It is for the hostile. It is for the evil. The gospel rescues sinners. And in the book of Acts, we find how we would read about Jewish priests being saved. You think, okay, sure, that makes sense. But we also read about Roman military leaders and Ethiopian officials and easily overlooked women in a patriarchal society. The gospel went into all the corridors of where humans are and saves. No corridor on this planet among all people groups are to be excluded from this inclusive announcement currently our church the church broadly speaking in our culture is wrestling with some of this when we think about the nature of the gospel it tells us all forms of bigotry prejudice racism they're all evil opponents of the gospel message and have no place in the hearts of god's people this gospel goes to all places people and powerfully brings life and good but this inclusive announcement is very much about an exclusive savior all peoples everywhere are to submit to jesus christ alone for salvation speaking on his gospel ministry in another letter paul said this way in the beginning of romans that he received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name, Jesus, among all the nations. That he went about, as he closed his letter, preaching the gospel in Jesus Christ to bring about the obedience of faith. The only response to the gospel is to submit through faith. That Christ is king. King come to rescue his people. The only means of salvation. That is what the gospel is doing. No hard heart or hard place can stop what the gospel is doing, bearing fruit and increasing. So hopefully you're encouraged or thought that you would 
hopefully be encouraged to want to be about what God is doing. The Colossians were, be commend, they were being commended for being about what God is doing through the gospel. They were being commended for their fruit of the gospel in their lives. They were being encouraged. God, Paul is thankful for the evidence of what the gospel is doing in them. Their faith in Christ, their love of the saints, and their hope in heaven, and their lives that are living it out, and, and it's being made known of what is, God is doing in and through them. So maybe we too would like to join and what God is doing through the gospel. So how can we join God and what the gospel is doing? Well, first, I want to say we need to delight in it. We need to delight in it. Delight in the gospel. The, the Colossians were known for, for delighting in what God accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's never be a people who forget it or assume it or, or lose focus on it. May we never move beyond the gospel, but only deeper into the lifelong implications of it in our lives. May we be a people eager to treasure Jesus, to treasure what God has done for us. May that delight be real and well up in our hearts and our lives, bringing a, a, a zeal and a joy and a passion when we're gathered together on a Sunday morning or when we're gathered together in somebody's living room on a Monday or Thursday night. Or when we're meeting with somebody else on a Wednesday morning at 6 because that's the only time that you both can meet. And so you go ahead and you get up early and you meet. And you, you encourage each other to delight in Jesus before you go into work. Or maybe it is on a, on a Saturday where you give up some time to serve other people. That you want them to be encouraged to know that the reason why you're serving is because Jesus means everything to you. Delight in this. Don't let it just sit in your head as if it's a theological exercise that you want to sort of work out. Let it sink into your heart and bring joy and warmth to your life. And know and be eager to see people from all kinds of places coming to know this Jesus. And delight in that if they look different than you, smell different than you, act different than you. They're getting saved. What are we talking about? Delight in treasuring Jesus. Secondly, declare it. It has to be announced. Like the Bible has made that abundantly clear. God is in the business of announcing things. And he wants his people to be announcers too. Paul understood his ministry as an ambassador. Ambassador just simply represented what the king said to do and say. So we too are to to announce and to say what it is that God has done. There is a, and I, I may offend some in here. I'm sorry. There is a terrible quote wrongly attributed to St. Fran Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. It's a terrible quote. He, for one, he never said it. Poor guy. Never said that. Nowhere in any of his writings did he ever say that. Secondly, it's terrible because the gospel has to be proclaimed. Words are necessary. The sentiment is fine and good and all, but the gospel is an announcement. It is to be declared. It is to be shared. It is to be said. Say it. Proclaim it. 
It is an extroverted message that will use an introverted person to bring about the salvation of somebody else. It's powerful. It brings life. It's good. It'll do it. God doesn't fail. Here's the catch. You need to know what you are to declare. You need to know it. Know what God has done. Know the specifics of the gospel. God, man, Christ's response. And use the aspect of your stories to anticipate and spotlight the specifics of what God has done. And pray God will give you boldness, courage to say what he has done to save sinners. Declare it. And then thirdly, really what the sentiment of that statement is getting at is to display it. What we see in the gospel is God sacrificially, graciously, and generously securing salvation for sinners. God sacrificially, Son of God came, lived, and died. Graciously, doing for us what we did not deserve. And generously, securing for us a full salvation. God did that. And our lives are to be lived out in a culture around us in the same way. So, sacrificially, ask yourselves, how have I or how will I live sacrificially to display the fruit of the gospel so as to gain the opportunity to declare the gospel? How might you order your life To be intentionally in the lives of those who seem far from God. Maybe somewhere in your neighborhood, someone in your neighborhood, or someone you work with. Maybe a family member. Maybe a friend that you've known for many, many years. How would you order your life to bring greater sacrificial intentionality to be in their lives? So that they see something in you that's different than what they see every single day. Graciously. How might you look at life differently if you realize that most of the people who live and work and play and drive all around you know absolutely nothing about what you believe. Simple words like the Bible or Jesus. They have no understanding or definitions for it. How might you live? You realize that most people under the age of 35 have never physically walked into a church building. Ever. At all. For anything. Not a wedding. Not a funeral. Most of those don't happen in churches anymore. Let alone have any idea what the word substitutionary means. How might those realities change the way you live among them? My hope would be your life would be marked with grace. A long-term, 
long-suffering grace to build a trusted relationship to talk about an entirely new language with somebody who has no idea what on earth the gospel is about. Might your view of others be, be seasoned with grace and then your interaction with them be filled with grace? Like inviting them into your home to have dinner. Maybe inviting them to your game night with some others from Trinity. Maybe letting them see that like, yeah, we're kind of normal, weird people, not just weird, weird people. And that leads me to the third one, generous. Allowing for time and proximity to happen where sacrifice and grace can be shared and experienced with others. My wife is incredible at this. Just in a few weeks, just after a week or so of school, she's already praying with one of the crossing guards near one of our kids' schools, praying for heavy things in this crossing guard's life. Who knows when, if anyone has ever really prayed with this lady. Simple. Few extra minutes out of her day walking back from dropping her kid off at school. Simple. Slightly sacrificial, but gracious and generous. Provides a context, trusted relationship that will give way to more conversations about Jesus. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be the most gifted public speaker. You just need to be you. Where you are, around the people who know you. Be sacrificial with your life. Be, be gracious. Be generous. For that's what God has done to rescue you. Who people have who, who are the people God has in your life now that you have the privilege to sacrificially, graciously, and generously display gospel fruit with the hopes of declaring what sets your life on such a different path? First Peter 3.15 is a good guide for us today. We certainly live on the margins in our culture, but my encouragement to you is let's make the most of it. First Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Know the gospel. Know what the gospel is doing. Plead with God to move in your heart to join him in what the gospel is doing. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Let us know this, declare it, and display it in our lives and church. To God's glory, to our good, and to the salvation of others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.